Talking to Erin Ballou, who claims that she sounds like a dude. So I'm <laughs> going to tell you right off that she's not. I mean, I am not making that claim for myself. I just get called sir on the phone about 50 times a month. So you know what? You could probably write a poem about that. There's there's just a lot embedded in that. Indeed. There really is. Um, Anyway, uh, this is the High Poetry Collective, and I'm here with Erin Ballou, and it's probably going to be a fun conversation today, judging from this auspicious beginning. We, of course, are sheltering in place. <clears throat> it's windy today in California, so the show might be interrupted by a tree crashing through the living room. And on Erin's end, she has a pesky cat who might want to join into the conversation at some point. And of course we're on Zoom, which sometimes sounds like a spaceship landing. So just to let you all know that that is the situation, but we plan on having a lovely poetic conversation and we're so glad that you joined us here. Thank you for inviting me. Oh, I well, I read your poems online somewhere like Poetry Daily or something. And I saw that you wrote a book called Slant Six. Mm -hmm. And I drove cars with Slant Six engines for about 20 years. It thrills me that you made that connection because a lot of people don't actually make that connection. Um, they, they don't know what a slant six, I mean, not that anybody should necessarily know that, but whenever I'm always tickled when people realize it was the most kind of, uh, uh, you know, um, what's the, what's the word, a muscle car engine, but a really kind of shabby, shabby one. You know what I mean? Not like a GTO or something. It mine, my cars with slant six, slant six engines, I had Valiants, Lancers and darts. <sighs> And they had push button transmissions. So you push a button to, to put it into first gear. They were all automatic transmissions. And they weren't really muscle cars, although Chrysler made Hemis, made mo uh, muscle cars. They were just really, really good, solid, reliable yeah. cars. Yeah. And so beautifully styled. So. Um, I had to quit driving them because I couldn't find a mechanic older than my car that knew what to do with it. And, but when I saw you had a, a book called Slant Six, I was like, okay, I'm buying the book. I don't even need to read another poem, but I love the book. That's and then I see you online here and there. And, and he, every time I go, I have to talk to this woman. So <laughs> that's a little bit about me and why. Thank I'm you for the invitation. Um, so... I, I need to tell my audience a little bit about you. Erin <clears throat> Ballou was born and raised in Omaha, Nebraska and received a graduate, graduate degrees in poetry and literature from the Ohio, Ohio State University and Boston University. She is the author of Infanta, winner of the National Poetry Series, 
one above and one below, which received the Midland Authors Prize, Black Box, a finalist for the Los Angeles Times Book Prize, and Slant Six, which received a star review from Publishers Weekly, and was chosen as a New York Times critic 10 favorite books of 2014. Her most recent book, Come Hither, Honeycomb, was published in February 2021. That's right now. Just recently. Yeah. So folks, there's a book out there that you might want to look at. All of her poetry collections are published by Copper Canyon Press. Her poems have appeared in places such as The New Yorker, Poetry, The Atlantic, Plowshares, Slate, Poem a Day, Kenyan Review, Poetry, American Poetry Review, and The New York Times. And she has been selected for multiple appearances in the Best American Poetry Anthology Series. She is a well-known political activist in the literary world and founder of the literary resistance network, Writers Resist. Blue was for many years the poetry managing editor of Agni Magazine and was the founding editor of Hotel America. She teaches in the MFA PhD program in the University of Houston, as well as the low residency MFA program at Leslie University in Cambridge. So once again, welcome to the show, Erin. Thank you very much. <clears throat> so <clears throat> there's a lot in this <clears throat> in this bio that I would like to talk to you about. Sure. But you are the editor at Agni Magazine, which is quite a good magazine. Could you tell us a little bit of what you look for in the poems that you published? Sure. I was actually the executive editor uh, as a wonderful writer named Oskald Melnichuk, who retired not that long ago, but he was the founder and was a real mentor for me in the editing universe. Um, you know, that, that's such a good question. You know, what do editors look for? But it's sort of like, it's kind of like when people say, well, I have a type, right? Except that then you find out later that the, you know, the, like, I only date guys who are six foot five or something. But then they, they end up married to someone who's five foot eight or something, because you just, you never really know what you're going to kind of fall in love with. Um, and, and I think it's like that for editors often. Um, I think a good editor has wide, you know, and varied tastes. It would be unfortunate if, you know, I, I'm not sure how excited I would be about a magazine that was only interested in publishing a very kind of narrow range of voices. Um, so I know people, but I think the thing that I do, or I used to do back in the day, is I would just really read the magazines carefully. Um, and try to get a sense of what I thought that kind of editorial vision was for that particular magazine over time. Um, and that would help me figure out what poems that I wanted to send for consideration. Um, and I even did, I took a page out of Sylvia Plath's book where I would look at magazines that I wanted to be in. Like I did this with The New Yorker the first time it was published there. and. I, I looked at it and I thought, okay, within, within what I conceive this aesthetic range, how can, I, how can I turn that into a prompt for myself? That is not meaning that I would impersonate any other poems, but what are the kind of structural things that I see going on here that I can use as, as a kind of 
model for making the shape for a poem. Um, and I found that was actually one, I mean, I always got a poem out of it. Um, I got my version of it out of that. And, and it was, and it had a pretty good batting average in terms of publication too. Mm. So that, that's my best advice, I think. In terms of an editor looking at work, you, you just fall in love or not in some ways. Yeah, there's a, there's a sense where you feel, I mean, some of, some of it has to do with like, oh, what have we published recently? And, you know, how many pages? There's some things like, oh, I love this 16 page poem, but I cannot find a space for it right now because I can't give up that much real estate in the upcoming issue. But once you get beyond those kind of pragmatic things, it's really about, you know, and I always think this is, you know, this it's so varied, right? Like what kind of day is the editor having? Did they have a cheese sandwich or a tuna sandwich? You know, you try to read the crystal ball of these things. And I think it's just so hard to describe why people love what they love. Yeah. Um, so, so, and that's why I always tell my students too, it's not, you know, if someone doesn't, if a certain editor isn't interested in your poems, it's, that doesn't mean your poems aren't good, right? Um, it just means they're not that person's cup of tea. And I realize that can be sort of frustrating, but at the same time, doing everything you can not to feel like it's an indictment of your soul as an artist is, is very important, being able to set up that sort of fence so it doesn't hit. I'm a complete hypocrite though, because this is why I don't send out poems very often because I remember being rejected for like the 10th time in a row. I was probably 30. And it was like the 10th rejection in a row I'd gotten from Joseph Parisi at Poetry Magazine. And I kicked my mailbox into the ground. Like I kicked the post until my mailbox fell over. Um, and, and so I'm a hypocrite and <laughs> it feels terrible. It feels terrible, but you know, <laughs> do as I say, not as I do, I guess is what I mean. Like, I really like dating. Yes, although I've never actually kicked a man that I've dated. Um, I've occasionally wanted to, but I've never actually done that. Yeah, um, and being mad at poetry mag, being mad at poetry magazine for not getting into poetry is especially of all the places. Well, <laughs> and it was also, and other writers listening to this will recognize this phenomenon where you keep getting the um, almost. Mm, I almost took these but let's see what else you have. And I'm thinking, what am I, a bubblegum machine? I'm like, I don't have 3000 poems for you, Joseph Parisi, to consider, <laughs> you know? You've already seen like a hundred. And, and again, nothing against Joseph Parisi, um, but it was just sort of like, oh my God, like how many times am I gonna get the, I almost took this. And then for whatever mysterious atmospheric reason, <laughs> he didn't. And that's when I kicked the mailbox into the ground. Still, when I get a rejection and it's not one of those nice rejections, that makes me mad too. Oh, sure. There's a million reasons. I mean, rejection is just terrible. It's horrible. Okay. Well, let's, let's take a look at a poem that you sent to me, which is a poem that you feel resonates with you. It's called Kindly by Ashley Capps. Yeah. And so Aaron Ballou, would you go ahead and read kindly for us? And we'll talk about it after? Yes, and we'll, and we'll do whatever with it. Okay, this is Ashley Capp's uh, poem, Kindly. 
There are cases where a fact cannot come at all and a leaf falls down in front of me and I steal this leaf because I need it and don't want to think about the future. Just this leaf. By looking at it, looking at it regularly, then maybe under a microscope. Hours pass in this fashion. When you got your first microscope, do you remember how it came with four or five blank slides packed in styrofoam? And because you couldn't resist, you picked your freshest scab to run, your, to run the slide across your fingers so you could see inside your own blood. Love is an emergency. And every decimal of dew and every time that we are careless. Lovely. That's the poem Kindly by Ashley Capps, read to us by Aaron Ballou here on the Hive Poetry Collective on KSQD Santa Cruz 90.7 FM. I'm Deanna Riley. Well, do you think this might be an Ars Poetica? Or in case our listeners don't know what that is, a poem about writing poetry? Um, that's an interesting way to think about it. I think it's, yeah, I think probably it is. It goes on for several more sections after that. So the poem becomes uh, this, you know, complex, sequenced exploration of of oh wow it's I mean that's the thing about this poem it's 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 so gigantic right it's so I mean it's still not a particularly long poem but it it and it's an incredibly concise poem but it contains like an entire consciousness inside of it which I think Ashley which is another way of talking about an Ars Poetica right which is what what does our consciousness believe about art about poetry um, and I think Ashley is particularly good at that idea of a kind of, and that's one of the things I always love in poetry is when you have a very particular sense of a soul that's animating the poem, right? I, I feel the consciousness, the aliveness, the particular aliveness of the speaker inside the poem. Which really really relates back to why you fall in love. Yes. You see a person. Yes, right. They are three-dimensional to you. And there's nothing like being in love with someone where every aspect, you know, and that those that first blush of love where that person, like, you know, like the, the smallest gestures are so beautiful to you. And that's um, what this poem is, is about, in a way, looking so very, very deeply into something so deep that you're looking into yourself too. Yeah. And, I, the, I, and the image of the microscope, right? And that's the turn, yeah. Like all of a sudden it's, um, when you got your first microscope, do you remember how it came with four or five blank slides packed in styrofoam? And because you couldn't resist, you picked your freshest scab or ran the slide across your finger so you could see inside your own blood. Love. I, I love that line, inside your own blood. Yeah. Love. And it's such a small quotidian gesture, right, of like what a kid does with her first microscope, but it also feels enormous in the way that she 
connect, you know, because that's what poetry is, is sort of digging inside. Often that's what poetry is, is digging inside the ordinary to figure out that every moment of life is actually quite extraordinary. It's an act of love and yet it hurts sometimes. Yes, very much. You know, there's often a little blood spilled when you write a poem. Or, or buckets full. <laughs> lots and lots. Yeah, so that's what I kind of felt in this poem is it kind of reminded me of writing a poem. And I even kind of feel like when you're writing in that moment, when you slit yourself in the blood and it begins to flow, you, that's like, you're going, oh, that hurts, but I think we're onto something here. Yeah, I think what is Plath calls that the blood jet. The blood jet. Um, Going for the jugular. Yes, yes. Yeah, so um, a lovely choice to kick off the conversation. Um, well, I strongly recommend uh, anyone listening who loves poetry, um, Ashley's book is called, her first book is called uh, Mistaking the Sea for Green Fields. Um, and she's since, this this poem isn't actually in that book because um, she's, I think, hopefully finishing up a second book now. She's also a very um, uh, committed and pretty well-known animal rights activist. So I think her life is also taking her in that, has taken her in that direction as well. But I'm very excited for her to have a second book, hopefully soon, because I think she's brilliant. Absolutely brilliant. Well, when we post this, we on the podcast, we will put a link to her oh, excellent. and to you. Oh, well, thank you. And your new book. So yes, a very, a very propitious poem to begin our talk about poetry. <clears throat> and hopefully we'll spill a little more blood along the way and, and look at it under a microscope. Sure, it seems likely. Why don't we go to your poem in ecstasy? In ecstasy? In ecstasy. Do you remember, I, I found this online. Do you remember where this one was published originally? Oh golly. Um, <laughs> I barely remember my middle name most of the time. So uh, it's probably in the acknowledgements page. It's somewhere. Yeah. <laughs> it's in one of the books. <laughs> somewhere brilliant. Mm -hmm. That you must check out. Okay, Erin Ballou here on the Hive Poetry Collective. Why don't you go and read In Ecstasy? Okay, I think I will. Um, uh, so this is the poem In Ecstasy and it has a little epigraph that says at the altarpiece of St. Teresa. No need to be coy, you know what she's doing. And so did Bernini when he found Teresa in the full throttle of her divine vision, caught her at it carving this surrender so fluidly, you expect the impossible. For her tang to swell up, ripe as sea foam from the gulf of her flushed and falling figure. Perhaps this is how God comes to us or should come to us all. The bluntly and beautifully corporeal at prayers in the Sunday school of pleasure. Why shouldn't he come to us? as he did to Teresa, a saint on her back, a girl tearing open the gift he gave her. Thank you, Erin. That was her poem in ecstasy about Saint Teresa. It's an ekphrastic poem. 
It is an ekphrastic poem. I love that word. You, you sound like Sylvester the cat whenever you say the word ekphrastic. <laughs> it is an ekphrastic poem. Which, for our listeners, is a poem about some other kind of art. And this is about a sculpture by Bernini of St. Teresa in her ecstasy. I love the opening, no need to be coy. You know what she's doing. Thank you. I mean, I, I you know, I'm a giant art history nerd. Um, and I remember, <clears throat> like I, I had enough credits in college to actually have an art history major um, because I was just obsessed with Renaissance and proto-Renaissance art when I was 18, which is okay. Um, and I just remember being like 18 and seeing that altarpiece that's in, uh, in Rome, right? That many people, and it's a very famous altarpiece that many people visit when they go to Rome to see Bernini sculpture. Um, <clears throat> and I just, it hit me as so profound. And then I remember the professor talking about, it, and he was a wonderful professor, but he was talking about it in these terms that were very, you know, sort of religious and and and, and historical. And it seems so obvious to me that the that the the altar priest is also like just highly sexualized, right? Very purposefully by Bernini. Like this isn't an accident that Teresa's ecstasy has this this just intense sexuality that it exudes from it. But we weren't talking about it. Um, and so that was one of those images. I think most poets have that little bank of images that they carry around in their mind. And I'm not, I can't remember what triggered the poem at that particular, because it was years later that I wrote the poem. But yeah, St. Teresa's ecstasy had been hanging around in my head for a very long time. It's really interesting that something so obvious as her appearance appearing to have an or be in an orgasm in the throes of an orgasm should yes. be lost on this man. Yeah, and I think for my feminist, or maybe he didn't want to talk to a room full of undergrads about it. Or, or maybe he'd never seen it. Or maybe he'd never seen it, or maybe it made him uncomfortable. But from a feminist perspective, I thought it was sort of interesting that, you know, I'd never, and I remember reading about it and I don't, and I think since then there's been much made of that. But at the time I remember thinking, why am I the only one thinking about this? <laughs> and so that's often a good place for me to write a poem from this space of feeling like, because I always feel like um, one of the things I was taught very young is write about what you know. But, but the important part of that is also write about what other people don't already know, right? So, so I thought, oh, that's, to me, that, that's sort of, it seems to me a sort of fresh, possibly a fresh observation or at least handling it, also handling it the way of like, why should she be ashamed of that? Um, and I've also always been interested in sort of just anything sort of psychoanalytic. And, and in school, I ended up going on to study a lot of, psychoanalytic theory. And I'm always interested in how our unconscious, human beings are just these weird animals <clears throat> with frontal lobes that make us these sort of complex creatures that half know and half don't know ourselves at all the times. Like I don't feel Fern, my cat Fern does not have this conflict. I think Fern always knows who she is in every given moment. Um, Do you feel like you have to go a little bit 
below the frontal lobe to get to what you want to write about? Do you think? Oh, absolutely. I think you have to get out of the way of yourself often to write a poem and trust that between the unconscious and the fact that language is always trying to mean things, you're, you're sort of there to be the conduit for something fresh. Because I don't think most freshness in imagery and thought comes out of the conscious mind first. I don't think that's where we, and, and you know, the creative and the analytical part of the mind are according to neurologists, they're very different areas of the brain. Um, so there's generation and then there's probably the more conscious process of revision. So you're not just writing what you know, but you write what you don't know too. You go, you go through what you know into what you don't know. Well, and discovering things that you didn't realize you thought, for me, is the funnest part of writing a poem. Um, I just love what my poems tell me that I didn't know that I thought. I really love this line, Sunday, uh, prayers in the Sunday school of pleasure. I love the Sunday school of pleasure. I love how it incorporates some of these ideas in the poem that Teresa's, Teresa's God here is something learned through her own pleasure, that she's learning God through her own internal abilities to be excited. Yeah, like the like the ecstat the I the notion that uh, that religious feeling is can be ecstatic and that religious feeling can be centered in the body. You know, the poet Carl Phillips writes often from that position of thinking about the sacred and the erotic in relationship to each other. So I find that really interesting. Yeah. Wonderful that Bernini was able to capture that once again, the art uncovering something really profound about God and sexuality and women and beauty. It's very odd that I've been to Italy, like I've had the luck and the great pleasure of having gone to Italy at least, what, four times in my life, but I have yet to go to Rome. Um, and so I've never actually seen the Bernini altarpiece in person. And I'm just hoping I get there one of these days. Maybe that'll be my post COVID like splurge, for, you know, is like, I will finally get to see it there. I've had these moments in, of, um, I finally got to see Theodore Jericho's Raft of Medusa in person at the Louvre. And that was a whole other odyssey where I kept trying to go to the Louvre to see it because I taught in France for a number of years and every time I would go to the Louvre, it was closed for like the, you know, the genuflection of St. Genevieve's knuckle bones day or something. And I'd be like, what, <laughs> you know? And, I, and it became this like mission to finally see Jericho's Raptor the Medusa that I also have a poem about in my first book. And so finally after like five attempts, I finally got to see it. Um, but I have not gotten to see the altarpiece of Teresa yet. Well, it sounds like art does inspire you a lot, but in you have a poem about a more quotidian subject and that is just sitting in the doctor's office and oh, talking yeah. to the doctor. I mean, I think that people expect the poetry will be about something, about ecstasy or religion or passion, something. Oh God, I love that final line. 
a saint on her back, a girl tearing open the gift he gave her. Yeah, so he gave it to her, but she tore it open. I just love that. But I, we could talk about that for a long time, but I would like to go to this poem that moves away from that ecstatic realm into the day-to-day. -day. <clears throat> so let me just say that this is KSQD Santa Cruz 90.7 FM, the Hive Poetry Collective, where on Sunday nights at eight, you can hear poetry on KSQD. And you can find us on our Facebook page at the Hive Poetry Collective on KSQD. And we have a Twitter at Hive Poetry and we have a website, hivepoetry.org. And we would love to hear from you. If you would like to be on the, our show or if you have ideas for the show, we'd love to hear from you. And we're so glad you're here today. And I'm so glad Aaron's here today too. And the next poem that I was thinking we would listen to is called Pity the Doctor not a disease. Shall I go ahead? Yeah. All right, this is Pity the Doctor, Not the Disease. Um, the one thing I would say about this is uh, there's a reference to a very odd body part here. And there's also a point where Longfellow, the poet Longfellow walks in for just a second and the line that sounds like Longfellow will be Longfellow speaking in that moment. So Pity the Doctor, Not the Disease. Science in its tedium reveals that every spirit we spirit ganks a solid half hour from our lifespans. So says my doctor, a watery Jesus-eyed man and hard to suffer with his well-intended scripts for yoga and neti pots, notably stingy with the better drugs in situ here amid the disinfected toys dreadful in their plastic baskets. Above his head, the flayed men of medical illustration are nailed for something like decor. The eyeball scheme is best with its wondrous canal of Schlem, first favorite of all weirdly namesaked body parts. It's just a splotch of violet on the diagram, but without it, our aqueous humors would burst their meshy dams and overflow. Dust thou art, to dust returnest was not spoken of the soul, is what I quote to him as he thumps my back with his tiny doctor's tomahawk. But he's used to me. We have an understanding. What he means to miser, I've come to spend most lavishly. And I feel fortunate again to be historically shaky in the maths, enough to avoid making an easy sum of my truly happy hours or nights curled sulfurous on my side, a price to sell shrimp boiling in anxious sleep. If we're lucky, it's always a terrible time to die. Better the privilege of booze than the whim of one more shambolic butcher shelling peasants in a wood, our world's long spree of Caesars, starting wars to pay their bills in any given era's Rome. Turns out Longfellow's stomach did for him and he died thirsty, calling for more opium. Free of the exam room now, I spot the same busted goldfish in his smeary bowl beside the door where he's glugged along for years, a mostly failed distraction for poxed or broken children. 
I raise my fin to him, celebrate the poison we're all swimming in, remembering the way you say cheers in Hungarian, Ishtan Ishtan, meaning in translation, I'm a God, you're a God. Nice, thank you, Aaron. Now that I think about it, that ending, I'm a God, you're a God, the poem flows nicely from St. Teresa. No, oh. I, I never realized my own religiosity until it's, it's now coming to the fore in this conversation. Well, it's hard to, uh, it's kind of hard to avoid religion, I think, in poetry because yeah. I think there's some connections. Yeah, sex, death, and the sacred, I feel like that's pretty much the wheelhouse of poetry. Yeah, just trying to figure out how a narrative to get through life. Yeah, yeah, I think that's true as well for many people. Yeah, I, I guess the, the version I have that I got off of, I think the poetry web, poetry.org website. Yeah, it was, a, it was a poem for a poem a day. It's quite different, in, the version is quite different from the one you read. Is it? Yeah. Oh, wow. that doesn't surprise me. I, 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 people have to like stage interventions with me to get me, like my good friends, uh, poet friends will like tell me I have to stop because I'll just keep whittling away at things. Copper Canyon finally had to be like, Aaron, really? No, really, really? This is the deadline. And I was like, could I just add one more? Could it? You know, but yeah, I whittle away a lot. Do you think that tendency serves you well? I think it's I think it's a double-edged sword or coin. I'm not sure if it's a sword or a coin. I think the good thing is that I care deeply about precision um, and compression. I think the which I think are generally virtues in in one's poetics. Uh, I think the problem is that someone like me and I have friends who are also these kinds of writers where you can you can actually end up carving away all the light and heat from something if you keep fussing at it. Like at some point you have to stop trying to make everything perfect because perfection is sort of static. Um, and, you know, when I think of like the great poems that I really love, they usually have some imperfect perfection. Like I always think of uh, one of my all time favorite poems is Thomas Hardy's uh, The Darkling Thrush. And he says in uh, an aged thrush, frail, gaunt and small in blast beruffled plume had chosen thus to fling his soul upon the growing gloom. And I always laugh at the idea of if somebody today brought in the line blast beruffled plume into a workshop, everybody would be like, oh, you can't, oh my God, you can't say that. That sounds ridiculous. But it's actually the greatest line in the poem, right? So, or, you know, I mean, there's just tons of poems that you think about or like Robert Hayden's, what did I know? What did I know of love's austere and lonely offices? Like that would have never, which is the greatest ending of any poem in the 20th century. I could make an argument for that. And it, that I wouldn't have made it through a workshop. People would be like, oh, the diction is so different than what came before. I find it really disruptive. And so those weird little curly cues of, again, consciousness are often what actually make a poem come alive. That is really a hard balance, isn't it? Extremely. <laughs> it's really hard to grapple with, how do I just let my poem be the little idiosyncratic person that it is? 
Yes, the little weirdo machine that represents your inner life, your, you know, your, your soul for lack of a different word for it. Mm-hmm. Um, and finding that sweet spot between having a strong sense of poetic construction, but also not turn, you know, because I think we've all read poems that are like perfectly built, but they just never catch fire. Right, you can do everything right in a poem. Right, you can follow all the poetic rules, and you can do your hendecasyllabics or whatever it is you're doing. But that that isn't where the poem lives. That's the structure for the spirit of the poem. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. I always like to kind of pick out those little moments in a poem where it loses its tension. Yeah. Well, you know, there's a, like a bunch of adjectives. Like, that I wouldn't use. Um, this sure. one actually has a lot of interesting adjectives in it. Um, this is also a poem in which I, I have a jumble bag of words that I kind of perversely want to get into a poem sometimes. Okay. Um, so I was determined. I don't. I didn't care what anyone said. I was using the word ganks. Like I just love the word gank. And I, was, I love it. But you know what? I feel like it's very nicely balanced at the end by glugged. Well, thank you. I do. I, love, I love a glug. I love. I just love words. I just love. That sounded so. You know, I love words, but I just love words. I love their sounds, and I love the paint of them, and I love to collect them, and I like to use them in conversation, which embarrasses my son. Do uh, you have a pile of words that you go to, or do you have like a little notebook that you keep full of? little treasures that you can pull from to make your poems? No, I'm not a, I'm not a notebooker, which is, I've always thought was weird and probably wrong of me because I carry everything around my head. Mm. Um, And there's almost a way in a very kind of like Nebraska Presbyterian way, I'm afraid to get caught writing. Like, or like, I don't even know how to explain it. It's sort of like, because it's preposterous. Like most of my writer friends have notebooks or write in notebooks or keep a journal or whatever. And I just, I just feel this like self-consciousness. I even have tried. To you don't keep... want to be caught like St. Teresa was in the act. Exactly. I don't want to be caught it. writing. I love that this is the beginning though, speaking of words. Science and its tedium. I mean, that's kind of great right there. Science and its tedium reveals that each spirit we spirit. And right there, you're just, I mean, even if you move right through that, there's some, stuff going on in your mind about the word spirit and all its meanings. It means to take away, um, you know, it's a visitor visitor from the other world. It's alcohol. It's, yeah, so each spirit we spirit. Uh, It could be something we drink that we inhabit Oh, I like that way of putting that. That's very smartly said. Yeah, spirit right there kind of means inhabit or possess too. So it's it's just it's just a lovely play on words that oh you it it really sets up an interesting complexity right from the start, but also just makes perfect sense. You know, we know what it means. That each spirit we spirit ganks a solid hour from our lifespans. So I guess what he's saying is every time you drink, you're killing yourself. Yeah, this whole poem 
kind of was triggered by an article in the Times about doctors or scientists having like actually put a number on what each alcoholic drink, a number of minutes that each alcoholic drink supposedly costs us in our lifespan. And I was like, and I'm not actually that big a drinker anymore. You know, back in the day, I used to be able to drink a few vodkas, but I just thought, oh, wow, that's a really, and especially, I think it was, I think I wrote this poem. Is this true? I wrote it around the time, this is one of the later poems in the book. And so I, I, I think I wrote it around the time that the pandemic was just getting underway. And I thought, oh, wow, this is a really helpful piece of information. Thank you, scientists. I then I love, I love how you describe this guy. Or so says my doctor, a watery, Jesus-eyed man. <laughs> and I actually doctor, like my doctor a lot. I hope, I hope that comes across. Well, I think that there. comes through. A watery, Jesus-eyed, Jesus-eyed man, and hard to suffer with his well-intentioned scripts for yoga and neti pots notably stingy with the better drugs. Okay, I love suffer right next to Jesus <laughs> because you think suffer little children come unto me that he suffered on the cross and all that. But in this case, we are suffering because of this Jesus-eyed man. But so we know that he's kind of proselytizing and trying to convert. Yes. But he's converting us to yoga and neti pots. Well, I mean, I could be carrying my arm that had been severed into my doctor's office and he'd be like, have you tried yoga? And I feel like, oh my God, <laughs> like, please don't tell me to do it. And I'm not anti-yoga. I, I actually like yoga when I remember to do it. It's just like, he's really good because he he's the perfect doctor for me because he is not the Elvis doctor, right? He's not, he's... He has no interest in feeding my my Judy Garland, right? So I'm just like, what about Xanax? Would that work? And he's like, no, I think you should probably just exercise. And I'm like, oh, damn it. <laughs> he's unusual. That's unusual. I know. Um, I, I just want to say um, it's kind of funny because I actually wrote something where I said I've given up on elephants and neti pots and grandchildren with their dreadful toys. I actually had a line like that um, in a poem and I showed it to someone, they go, dreadful toys, exclamation mark. What do you mean? I think that's a fantastic line. <laughs> Genuinely, I think that's a fantastic line. <laughs> Maybe I'll put it back in. I mean, and it was about quarantine. I just haven't, I just haven't gotten back. I love that because it's got such presence it's got such a point of view it's funny though that i had neti pots and terrible toy dreadful toys in the same line so of course i love this poem um i love also this part of the body the canal of schlem um that stops us from crying yes the canal of schlem which again is autobiographically my favorite body part because it's so preposterous it sounds Dr. like it sounds like you know some like yiddish word or some yiddish dude what a schlem <laughs> yeah and it you know you know so dr schlem you know discovers this canal in the eye that is the thing that keeps 
you know, our aqueous humors in order. And it was sort of like, I know, I'll call it the Canal of Schlem. I was like, all right, that's cool, Dr. Schlem. I love the doctor's, well, well in the version I have, um, it's just a splotch of violet on the diagram Without, without which our aqueous humors would burst their meshy dams and overflow. I just love the idea there's some part of our body that stops us from crying all the time. It just kind of makes me think, you know, because if there wasn't something controlling us or keeping us held in, wouldn't we just cry all the time? I, I'm reading a version of the Odyssey right now. And the Achaeans are just crying, crying, crying all the time. Odysseus is always crying. And it's one of my favorite thing about it. It's just these men crying all the time. Uh, reading the Emily Wilson translation? Yeah, it's yeah. So good. It's so it, good. It's like reading a novel. I mean, it's just so ah. fun. But I thought, oh, that's just so great that there's this part of this body without which we would cry all the time. And then what you have in my version is I know what you're about to bring up and it's very embarrassing, but go ahead. Uh, is the line from Tennyson that you have is tears, idle tears, so sad, so fresh the days that are no more. Yes, my copy editor. So here's, here's what copy editors do for you and God bless them because in some ways they drive you crazy, but in other ways they keep you from making an ass of yourself because I had confused Tennyson and Longfellow's method of death or the means by which they died. And I had given the death of one to the other. And I needed that, you know, such and such did for him and he died thirsty calling for more opium, but that was actually Longfellow and not Tennyson. So I had to go back to my Longfellow and find the appropriate hinge there and thank god for my copy editor because they you know that poem had already appeared i i think it was an american poetry review and then my wonderful copy editor um came back and said yeah okay that's actually not factual well he's was, smart huh he was smart oh they're brilliant and they're they do the most like i think copy editing poets has got to be the toughest copy editing job um i remember Oh, so many, and I'm sure that I give them fits because I, 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 I'm like, of course that's a word, like the word fococulus and my copy editor, which is in a poem of mine and the copy editor, you know, was just like a question mark. And I was like, I heard a lady in Boca Raton say that once. So that is definitely a word. And they were like, okay. <laughs> the Boca Raton defense. Yeah, it was the Boca Raton uh, grammar defense. I do love how at the end, you go to Istan, is that word, the Hungarian word, Istan? Istan, Istan. Istan, Istan, meaning in translation, I'm a God, you're a God, because it goes back to the Jesus-eyed man at the beginning very nicely. Well, talking about Copper Canyon um, and your book, how did you shape your book? How did you order your poems? Or did you get some help with that? How did that come about? How'd you know you had a book? I mean, I just sort of count on, I, I just, it's a very instinctive, intuitive thing. Um, it felt to me over a period of a couple of years that I had completed a kind of emotional and intellectual trajectory, which I think are the two big trajectories in a poetry book. Not that they all have to kind of it's not like a matchy matchy thing. Cause I think a poem, 
books of poems are usually a collection of poems, right? The, the thematic, thematic books are more popular than they used to be, but I'm fine with a collection of poems just simply being a collection of poems on a variety of different subjects. But in the process, I think you, because of wherever you are kind of emotionally and intellectually through time, the poems start to hang together. Um, I will shame, shamefully admit that I never order my own books and I haven't, um, Carl, the poet Carl Phillips is actually a very close friend and he's been my close friend since graduate school hundred years ago. And I believe if I'm remembered correctly that Carl has ordered every one of my books for me. Oh man. <laughs> I'm just like, I, I'm so close to them and he's so good at it. Um, he's, and I mean, he's, I mean, what a generosity. And, he, and I'll be like, well, I don't know. What do you think of this? And he'll be like, oh, that's preposterous. Th that doesn't work for this reason. And then he just goes, you know, moves it all around. And then it's like, oh my God, that's great. That's what our poetry friends for are for, right? That, the, that gift of that friendship to have other, you know, wonderful poets in your life is a beautiful thing. Yeah, I'm beginning to realize that more and more all the time. Well, we probably have time for one more poem. And I was thinking instructions for the hostage. Is that a villanelle? It is indeed. Okay, which is like the biggest villain to write. It, it, so I admire this. Thank so, you. Um, yeah, real, why don't we go through it? We might be able to talk a teeny bit about it and then we're gonna have to wind up. Okay. Let me tell our audience that this is Deanna Riley on KSQD Santa Cruz 90.7 FM. And I am talking, this is the Hive Poetry Collective. I'm talking to Erin Ballou and Erin Ballou has a new collection out, brand new, Come Hither Honeycomb, which is such a great name. Um, so it's available where? Amazon, everywhere? At any fine bookseller. I would, I would uh, encourage you to choose an independent bookseller because they especially need our support right now. And there's bookshop.org. Bookshop.org is a great online resource. But there, you know, our, your local bookstore, I'm sure can go ahead and order that. Okay, Erin, why don't you read Instructions for the Hostage? Instructions for the Hostage. You must accept the door is never shut. You're always free to leave at any time, though the hostage will remain no matter what. The damage could be managed, so you thought. Essential to the theory of your crime, you must accept the door is never shut. Soon you'll need to choose which parts to cut for proof of life, then settle on your spine, though the hostage will remain no matter what. Buried with a straw, it's the weak who start considering their price. You're no great sum. You must accept the door was never shut and make a half-life there, aware, apart, afraid your captors lost you so far down, though the hostage you'll remain no matter what. Blink once for yes and twice for yes. The heart makes a signal for the willing, its purity sublime. You must accept the door is never shut, though the hostage will remain no matter what. Thank you. That was Erin Blue reading her poem, Instructions for the Hostage from her new book, Come Hither Honeycomb. And it's a villanelle. 
Do you, do you want to just briefly tell our listeners how a Villanelle works? Uh, it's a repeating form where the fir- you can hear that line, those, those two lines that get repeated over and over, and they keep moving positions until they come together at the end so that you have the phrase, you know, you must accept the door is never shut, though the hostage will remain no matter what. It's also traditionally, it's a French form, and in English, it's typically written in an iambic meter with a very specific rhyming pattern. It's, it's very powerful and very difficult villanelles, at least in my experience. Um, this one, I like the villanelle and the repetition because it feels like being trapped in a relationship is what this poem is about. And repeatedly trying to escape and finding the different ways that you're trapped by yourself. It's like beating against a door, though the hostage will remain no matter what. That sounds like a pretty good evaluation of it, yeah. Trapped, yeah, trapped in a relationship. You must accept the door is never shut. You can get out. The door is open. You must accept the door is never shut. You're always free to leave at any time, though the hostage will remain no matter what. There's some tension in that idea of you're free, but you keep yourself. Story of so many of our lives. Yeah. Well, it's just really hard to see the truth. Yes. It's a, and I mean, I, I call myself Captain Hindsight often. That would be a great superhero. That's my super, that's my stupid superpower is that, like realizing stuff 10 years after the fact. <laughs> I'm not sure. I'm not sure what, I don't think that's going to get me on the Avengers squad. <laughs> no, but it does get you in poetry. It, it's perfect for poetry. Is- oh. That's, that's, I'll take that then. Yeah, it's for looking back and kind of reevaluating it and not letting go, just like holding on to stuff and insisting on figuring it out is just so what poets do a lot of the time. Yeah, and I think women are often taught through life and through books that, that love is suffering, that love means suffering. Um, and I think about, especially having been a very bookish girl and you think about, you know, the Scarlet Letter and uh, Wuthering Heights. And you read about all of these women who are just trapped. Like, and then as a woman in my fifties, I look back and think, oh my God, (laughs) you know, and I thought those were the, just the ultimate romances, you know, the sort of the romantic bookish girl that I was. And then I think, wow, no wonder women come up with these ideas or have these ideas given to them. Yeah. You kind of look back on your life and go, well, this happened because I was a woman. Oh yeah, that happened because I was a woman. Oh, I was being manipulated there. And all the different forms of violation that take place. Mm-hmm. Yes, I, if, I could, if I could talk to you know, younger women, I would just say, don't ever think that love is suffering. That's, that's really not, <laughs> love is not supposed to be about hurting all the time. Or waiting. Hurting and waiting, yes. Waiting, waiting, waiting. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so yeah, you managed to pull off a villanelle. Blink once for yes and twice for yes. It's almost like it's almost like she's in a coma. And the answer is always yes. Yeah, no doesn't seem to be an option for her. It's not an option. The heart makes a single, a signal for the willing. It's purity sublime. You must accept the doors never shut, though the hostage will remain no matter what. Fabulous. 
Well, in these few minutes left, why don't you tell us about some of your current projects or anything you want us to know? Um, what is my, my current project is trying to find a vaccine <laughs> and, and having uh, just bought, I'm, I'm transitioning from moving, moving from Tallahassee where I am presently to Houston where I teach because I had to scamper back after the first semester at Houston and get home to be with my son. Um, and so I've since then bought, uh, bought a house in Houston. I just have to figure out a way to get to it. But I am having a lot of fun um, just frivolously uh, redecorating my new space, which if I weren't a poet, I would, I would love to just be an interior designer. I could spend, I can look at wallpaper for like days at a time. Well, you like art. Yes. Yes. But what about promoting your book? Are you? I mean, what's that going to be like? Oh, oh, books. Oh, um, yeah. I mean, that that seems to be going pretty well. It's gotten some really nice reviews, and people seem to like it. Which for me, this book feels incredibly vulnerable. Like I'm just not really wearing my skin in this book, and so it was a very odd feeling for it to come out and wonder what people were going to make of it. But people have been very kind. Well, that's um, probably going to mean people are going to like it. I think people love to see a skinless running around. Ooh, it feels it feels odd because obviously I use humor a lot, but I felt like I just don't want humor to become a point of like deflection for mm. what's true. So Erin Ballou's book is Come Hither Honeycomb and she has a bunch of other ones too. And it's been so wonderful talking to you today. It's been a huge pleasure. This was the highlight of the day. Oh, good. Yeah, it's so nice to connect. And it was great hearing, hearing your skinlessness and your humor. Uh, this is the Hive Poetry Collective. I'm Deanna O'Reilly. This is KSQD Santa Cruz 90.7 FM. Thanks for tuning in.